verse 12 starts this way. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is rich, it is deep. We can continue to plumb its depths and still come back to it time and time again and find rich truths. So, Lord, we thank you for this text this morning that you've laid this on our heart. That is a text that you want us to know, you want us to live by, you want us to understand, you want us to worship you through. So we would ask that you would do that today. Pierce our hearts with truth, Lord. May we not be the same as we were when we came in. May we be a little more like you, a little more changed, a little more dying to self, a little more living for Christ. May you continue to do that in and through us by your strength, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you have any goals and ambitions in life? Good question, huh? I think for some of us, you know, we get in that middle life and we have jobs and family and children and those things, sometimes we maybe don't think about goals and ambitions. What are they? What, what are your goals and ambitions for life? And, and, and in keeping in this text, are they part of your, or centered in your pursuit of Christ? I entitled the sermon, Pursuing the Prize of Christ. Pursuing the Prize of Christ. So I thought about this week, I think so often our goals and our ambitions, unfortunately, may not have Christ in the center of them at times. I think some of them are not wrong. You know, we strive to make money, to pay bills, and to meet needs of those we love. There's nothing wrong with those things. But it seems that somehow Christ can slip out of that. He cannot be part of our work ethic of our desires and ambitions and goals that God has given us. This morning, I want to challenge you as we look at this text. Are you pursuing the prize? Do you have in your vision the tape, the end, the end of the race? Are you running towards that? Do you desire to run through the tape or just maybe just coast? See, I think Paul's going to challenge us this morning that because he has this righteousness that's not his own, and he has received a salvation that he clearly has delineated in these texts that he does not deserve, he wants to run. And he wants to run hard. He doesn't want to come in stumbling and tripping. He doesn't want to come in completely self-centered and, and lost in the things that drag us away from Christ. In his previous text that we worked through the last couple of weeks, 
we see Paul given an amazing account of his religious credentials. Do you remember that? Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee, perfect when it comes to the law. But then he, he turns from that in an amazing recount in a way of this miraculous conversion that he took place on the Damascus Road and he encountered this life-changing event as he meets the resurrected Savior, all of that stuff begins to be worthless to him. He takes all that self-righteous and all those ambitions. I mean, he was an ambitious man, wasn't he? When we, we think religiously from here in verses four and five and six and so on. He was ambitious. And those around him would have praised him for those ambitions. But when he meets Christ, those things are worthless to him. In fact, he says they're, they're just waste compared to knowing Christ and having his righteousness. But Paul doesn't leave us there, and I think it's fascinating. He moves to wanting to have a salvation experience beyond the initial sanctifying process. He wants to expound and explore the power of the resurrection. He wants the continual chasing of knowing your sins are forgiven, knowing that Satan has been beat at the cross, knowing that he's free from his sins, and death doesn't hold him. Isn't that amazing? He, he, he's so encouraged that death does not have him by the throat anymore. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, death doesn't have you. We do not fear this death of physical body because we'll never see a second death. But Paul doesn't just end there. He says, I, I want to grow close to Christ through suffering. He uses the word koinia. I want to fellowship. I want to be like-minded with him. I want to know him more. I want to be dependent upon him as I suffer. And we talked about that last week. And we realize that when we go through suffering, two things happen. When we suffer, two things happen. One is we get cranky and mean. Mm. Man, I've been there. Don't like that. Or we pull close to Christ. And there's a connection with him in a, a very spiritual way. And we know that he has suffered for us and he gives us strength and we call upon him like we've never before. And I'm not talking just suffering of maybe being sick, but going through something that's difficult. You've been attacked. You've been gone after because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Family has abandoned you. Your, your feelings and and. And your care has been discarded because you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've suffered that way. There, in the midst of that suffering, Paul says Christ is there. Finally, in a typical Pauline humility, in verse 11, he says, look, I, I just want to attain the resurrection from the dead. He's not guessing whether he's going to get there. It's just that humble way of Paul saying, I want to... I want to make it all the way there. I want to run and love Christ in such a way that the resurrection of my body is such an important thing. He wants to see his Savior face to face. And he longs for that. I think it would have been easy as a young believer in Philippi to look at the Apostle Paul and assume that Paul had achieved some kind of religious experience. Or, or maybe... Maybe this, a spiritual perfection. He's the kind of guy that you hang around, you kind of go, wow, 
He always prays. He's always in the word. He always has the right spiritual thing to say. And so I think maybe in Philippi here, these men and women, these young believers thought maybe Paul was this one who had rich spiritual perfection. And they were tempted to say, let's, let's try to do that ourselves. And I think that's what this text does, 12 through the end of the chapter actually, is he reminds them that you are not yet perfect. Perfect in your position in Christ, but yet we press on to this upward calling. There is a race, there is a battle, there is a fight going on. And he's gonna push us this morning to make sure you and I have not sat on the side of the race, that we would get up and move. Now, interesting enough, in the early church, several things happened. One, the doctrine of salvation caused some people to say, hey, I'm saved. can live any way I want now. In fact, agnosticism had moved its way into the church in the first century, and basically what they had believed was, look, I'm saved in my spirit. There I am set free, and, I, and I'm free in, in my spirit of my person, and, and Christ has redeemed this. The flesh will die and decay and God will raise and give me a new body, but, but I'm free. So they would say, well, sin is in my flesh and, and over here is I just, I can live whatever I want, but I'm saved here in my spirit. Very dangerous teaching. It invades the church, invades it till, still to this day. There's lots of people who say, hey, I believe in Jesus. And they live immoral lives and just lives that look like the world. It happens all the time. So this is going on within the early church. Let me show you an example of this. Go to 1 John chapter 1. So I want you to get your mind around why Paul's doing what he's doing here. First John chapter 1, verse 5, start there. John says, this is the message we have heard from him. That's Christ. This is John, an eyewitness. We see that in the first couple of verses. We were with him. We heard him. We touched him. We saw him. We walked with him. And announced to you. So we're giving to you what he gave to us. That God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Right? He's completely righteous. There's no sin. He is sinless. It's a great aspect of God, right? And his goal is to wipe our sin away so we can have eternity in a sinless environment with him. Amen? Verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him, koinia, union, a bond with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. See, there's a problem in the early church. People are saying, hey, Jesus, Jesus, yeah, Jesus, you know, clap, raise hands, hey, let's have a great time. But they're walking in darkness. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, very clear double pronoun there to make sure we know who he's talking about. We have fellowship, we have koinia, we have union with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from our sins. From all sins. He takes away past, present, and future. This is the evidence in our life. Verse 8. 
if we say we have no sin, that was a problem. People were saying, oh, hey, I'm done. My sin's over with. I, yeah, I'm free of all of that. We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's a battle going on, brothers and sisters. There's still a wrestling with sin that we have. There is a redemption that is still yet to come in a sense. I call it the redeeming of our our human nature, our, our unredeemed human nature that needs still to be redeemed completely when we stand in front of him. Our position in Christ is set. There is nothing we can inherit to do anymore. Christ has done all things, but there is a process, a, a sanctifying process that God takes us through as we grow in the grace and knowledge of him. But if we say, oh, I have no sin, you know this in our marriages, problem comes up, and we say, that's your fault. And we don't ever get anything resolved because we always go, I'm not the problem. You're the problem. And, and the marriage never gets better. Right? It just decays because someone doesn't deal with sin. See, we're still wrestling with these things. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, there's a good news. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, but if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there's this wrestling going on in the early church. But let me assure you as you turn back to our, te- our text, is that the Bible says we are complete in him. I, we are not talking about adding to the finished work. We are talking about the motivation that comes from the finished work to walk in Jesus. To walk in a way that is pleasing to him. See Colossians 2.10 and other verses say that we are complete in Christ. We lack nothing in regards to salvation. So why pursue Christ after salvation? If we're complete, if we have everything we need to stand in his presence someday, Paul says, I don't want to be found in my own righteousness, but having my righteousness not of my own derived from the law, but having found the righteousness that is in Christ through faith. Why do we pursue Christ after salvation? If we receive everything needed in Christ for eternal life, why do we follow him in this life? I thought, just jotting things down this week that would come to mind of that. Uh, Here's some thoughts just to rattle around in your mind a little bit and hopefully they'll get to your heart. One, our lives are an act of worship to the one who rescued us. Someone pulls you out of the ditch and you're going to drown because your car's filling up with water. Wouldn't you want to get to know that person? Wouldn't you want to say, hey, to all your friends, here is the person who rescued me. I was drowning in the water, was filling up in the car. I would have never got out there, but this person dove in, broke my window out, pulled my sorry carcass out of there and brought me to, out of the water. I, would, I guarantee you'd want me to meet that person. See, Jesus did that for us. We were condemned. We were dead in our sins. Children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 2. We know we were lost. And so now there, our lives are acts of worships. So we say this around here. We don't do this because we have to, but because we get to. We get to worship. We get to put ourselves under the preaching and teaching of the word of God. Our lives are an act of worship. Two, it gives an assurance that our hearts truly are changed. 
If you have no desire to live for Jesus, you should doubt your salvation. You really should. I can't doubt your salvation because I can't look into your heart, but you should. You should say, I have no desire for Jesus. I don't have desire. I go to church because I, you know, I'm afraid that if I don't, my business won't be blessed or he won't give me what I want. See, following Jesus shows your heart's been changed. And you go, wow, I really do like Jesus. I'm really grateful. I, I love his word. It, it kind of shows me I got a few problems, but I do love it. See, there's an assurance that their heart has been changed. It produces great joy in your life. I have a beautiful wife and four wonderful sons. They are great joys to me. And I love them. But I love the Lord with all my heart, my soul, and my strength. Without him, I'm not the husband. I'm not the father that God asked me to be. I'm, I'm, I'm incomplete in every way. So there's a great joy that comes with following the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this book is about. It's about the joy giver and the joy we receive from following the Lord Jesus. Commanding, his commands and saying, yes, Lord, I joyfully walk with those. And look, some of you have a more difficult path at times. Maybe you're alone in your family as you pursue this. Maybe you're a first-generation Christian. But I'll tell you what, there's great joy when you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Another thing I thought of, I said, it protects us from unneeded suffering when we follow Jesus as a Christian. Now, we're going to suffer. The Bible says we're going to suffer as Christians. Don't be fooled. You'll suffer as a Christian in some way or another. But it protects us from unneeded suffering. And what do I mean by that, Scott? When we don't follow Christ, when we don't get in behind him and say, Lord, I want to submit my life to you, we get off the trail sometimes. And off that trail are problems. And we bring suffering into our life. And not only, think about this dads for just a moment. Not only we as dads get off the trail, those who we lead follow us often off that trail. And we bring suffering into our marriages. We bring suffering into our lives. We bring suffering that shouldn't be there because we chose to say, Lord, I know you want me to go this way, but I really want to do this. We teach parenting. We tell people, well, God has brought us into this beautiful circle of his love. And inside this circle is, is joy and discipline and all the wonderful things that are in there that yeah, help us stay straight and follow him and get, get on the path where we need to be. But when we venture outside that circle, the Lord wants us back in there. And in a sense, we kind of step out, though we cannot get away from him and we're still under his care. But in a sense, we reject that care and we step out from underneath there. See, I think what Paul's after in this text. He says, we're not perfect yet, but we need to press on. Just two more things as I thought through this. I mean, it's a sermon itself when you think about what it means to follow Christ. It testifies that Christ is in our lives to a lost world. A couple hundred of us here this morning, thousands of people in Hollister that don't know Jesus Christ. Thousands of people at your jobs. I mean, the world is lost. They're on their way to hell. 
and you and I have the light of Jesus Christ in us. See, one of the reasons we follow the Lord Jesus Christ is we become these lights, these shining examples of Christ in our life. And the lost world needs that. And, and then finally, just, and there's more to this, but these are just my thoughts. When we follow Christ, it equips us to serve others. Have you ever studied the one another's in the Bible? There's hundreds of them. One another's. Thinking of one another, loving one another, being kind to one another, reaching out to one another. When we follow Christ, there becomes a pattern in our lives where we start to serve one another. You get a bunch of people together, and you put them in, and you can put a title of them, Grace Bible Church or whatever, make them, have them the bride of Christ, and you teach them to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you will find people who will meet one another's needs. Get a bunch of people together who are extremely selfish and want their own ways and, you know, I'll follow Jesus on Sunday, but Monday's a whole different deal. You don't know how hard it is out there. You'll find people missing needs. There'll be people lacking care in their life. See, this following Christ does so much more than I think we all understand. So let me look at the text today briefly. I posed five questions that just as I thought through and studied through this text that I thought would would help us think through it a little bit. First of all, are we there yet? You all been in the car and you've had the kids in the back seat, right? You know this question. Are we there yet, Dad? I remember doing that myself with my father. My my father worked very hard and he was a very busy man, but when vacation came, he would start to talk it up. You, You know this. We're going fishing, son. And I'm going to tell you about this trout I caught last year. You know, you're you know, a little shaver. You're sitting. All you can think about, you can't sleep at night thinking about getting that rod in the water. And, and, and you go along and you just can't wait because dad has formed a picture of where we're going in my mind. And I long to be there. I can't wait to be in those tall trees and see that cool water running and, and to be that in that place. So I think that's what Paul's doing. He's pushing us. He's saying we're not there yet. We've not arrived yet. We we haven't stepped across the threshold of heaven and seen Jesus face to face yet. In fact, he goes on to help people understand. He uses the word already twice in there. Not that verse 12, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect. I like this about Paul. And you may look at this and say this is either encouraging or discouraging to you. But here the Apostle Paul, the writer of... 13 epistles, a planter of countless churches, says, I'm not yet there. To me, that's very, very encouraging. The one who says this great prologue of truth about himself and denial of these things that have anything to do with religious uh, precedence and that his righteousness is only found in Christ and he's dedicated to the, the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of suffering, it is that man who's saying, I have not yet arrived. I like that. (laughs) Because I go, wow, Paul's still running when he wrote this. He hadn't given up. He hadn't sat on the side of the road and said, well, Timothy, you take it from here. I'm done. He's running. He writes things like this, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, in that great love chapter. At the end, he says this, for now we see in a mirror dimly. I like that. I, I think about heaven 
I preach on heaven. But it's still dim, isn't it? I don't quite get golden streets and mansion and dwelling with Christ constantly and there is no sun because he is the sun. I mean, I know it conceptually. Am I right here? But I can't get my full mind around it because it's so far beyond a fallen mind's understanding. But he says it's, it's in a mirror dimly, but, but then he says face to face, now I know in part. See, I just know a little bit about it, but, but there's going to be a face to face encounter. Then I'll know fully just as I also have been fully known. See, he's going to get to that spot one of these days. So are we there yet? Are we honest with ourselves where we truly are in this progressive sanctifying journey? I think it's sermons like this that we stop and go, oh Lord, I'm on the side of the road. I'm not running. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. I'm not happy with what you've led into my life. And I'm sitting on a log while everybody's running by me. See, I think sometimes we've got to be reminded of this. That this is a race. This is a journey. Second question. Will we seize what is already accomplished? Will we seize what is already accomplished? Look at verse 12. But I press on. Very tricky English words here because it's coming out of a, uh, the Greek language and we're trying to bring it, the, the truths of this into English. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was past tense, laid hold of by, G- by Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, I'm going to run, I'm going to press on, I'm going to try to seize these things that Christ has already laid hold of for us. And you go, well, what are those things? Well, just think of some of the things we know in Scripture. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that you are a new creature. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. You are a new creature. That means you used to be a what kind of creature? An old one. (laughs) We're not an old one anymore. We're a new creature. You're, you're, You're not what you used to be. Isn't that good? Because what you used to be can't go to heaven. Because it's dead. It doesn't have spiritual life. It's not right. It's righteousness on its own cannot cross the threshold of heaven. It cannot enter into the gates of heaven and be with a holy God so he has to make you a new creature and that's what he's done for you. Paul says, I'm trying to grasp these things. What about a new heart? 2 Timothy 2.2 says that he calls us from a pure heart. I think Paul's taking that probably from Ezekiel 36 where he speaks of Israel and says, I'll take out their heart of stone and I'll put a new heart of flesh in there. You have a new heart. One that beats and loves and wants to know God more. Ephesians 3.16 says he grants you spiritual riches and strength. You're the richest people in the world. Do you know that? Well, my checkbook doesn't show it. Oh, you got an account in heaven that is so full and so overflowing. You got an account in heaven that there's no way there can be a price put to it. God has made you rich and he strengthens you. You're one in Christ, Galatians 3.28. 
there's a unity of those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians, excuse me, First Corinthians two sixteen says we have the mind of Christ. It says the, law, the world doesn't. Their their minds are depraved. Their minds are unable to understand Christ and God's plan. But he, but Paul there makes it very clear throughout that text. You have the mind of Christ. You can know Him. Romans eight one. You have no condemnation. You'll never be judged. Wow. Can you imagine that? You're going to watch it happen. You're going to watch the almighty God, our Lord and Savior, sit there and go. He'll separate sheep and goats. And you'll watch God separate those who reject him into eternal punishment. You'll never see that. Isn't that amazing? We'll never see the judgment of God on us for our sins. They're gone. They're wiped out. And that's because Christ imputed his righteousness to us when he took his sins, took our sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. You've been redeemed, Ephesians 1.7, and your sins are forgiven. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, according to Romans 8.9, dwells within you. This is what he's trying to grasp. This is what he's pressing on to try to lay hold of which is already accomplished. And think about this, Hebrews 13.5. God will never leave you nor forsake you. Your family may. (laughs) People in your life may. But God will never leave you nor forsake you. See, this is what Paul is striving to grasp, what he's trying to seize. He's trying to get a hold of what is already accomplished. This is what we spend our life studying the scriptures about and realizing, realizing and reminding ourselves what the Lord has accomplished. He's laid hold of. Notice the word press on in that text. I like this little word. It means to pursue or chase. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, Paul says this, therefore do not lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed, being present continual tense, being renewed day by day. Peter tells the body of Christ to grow, present tense, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. There's this new man, this new woman that is growing, going, running after the Lord Jesus Christ, chasing those things he's accomplished. I don't know if you're an athlete or not, but those of us that at least at one time claimed to be athletes, we like Paul. Because he uses metaphors that we get. He says stuff, run the race, fight the good fight, box without boxing in such a way that you're not beating the air, discipline my body, finish the course, receive the prize. This is what he's after. I get my mind around that stuff. I can see that. Run, fight. It's a good fight. Don't swing meanlessly at, at things in the air. Direct your punches towards something. Discipline your body, discipline your life. Finish the course, run after a prize. He's pushing us. So brothers and sisters, are you pressing on to grasp what Christ has finished for you? Do you know that more? Do you understand it more? See, the race is dangerous because if we don't run, a still target is an easy target. If you've ever tried to shoot something, you have to be careful here. When they're standing, they're a little easier to hit. Satan prowls like a roaring lion, doesn't he? He's looking for people to devour, according to 1 Peter chapter 5. Keep moving. Press on. That's what Paul's after. Keep moving towards the finish. Do not find yourself sitting or you will be pounced on. 
Third question, what is our spiritual direction? What is our spiritual direction? Look at verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet. I'm not there. I haven't crossed that threshold yet. I'm still reaching for those things that Christ has already accomplished, he says. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. It's amazing. Paul, again, reminds us that he's not fully there. I like that. But Paul doesn't leave us empty-handed without instructions of how to press on. This is the nature of Scripture. The nature of Scripture teaches these things. Teaches us how to keep pressing on. Just look with me over at Colossians chapter 3. Just one book over. You know this text. You go, well, how do I do this? How do I keep running, Scott? I, I, there's times I want to sit down, and there's times, to be honest with you, I do sit down, and I'm not running the race. Now, this is Paul's MO. He does this text after text. The Spirit inspires him to write this way. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... That's that new creature. That's that forgiven sinner. That's that one who has the righteousness of Christ. If you've been raised up with him, keep seeking the things above. Continual present, continual tense here. Keep seeking the things above. Ah, we seek things of this world too much, don't we? And when we find ourselves spiritually drained at times, I'll tell you, what drag your spiritual life down is seek the things of the world. Because you can't ever get them. They're just, there's something new every minute coming out. It's just the next thing, and you've got to have this, and you've got to have that. And the world's just worn out, and they just don't know it. And you and I, as believers, do this. Paul says, seek the things above. Keep, present tense, seeking, continually seeking the things above, where Christ is. Boy, if he came today and he said, hey, what are you seeking? I'm here, and you keep seeking things here. <laughs> Why are you doing that? Hmm, sorry. Keep seeking the things above. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. He's, and then he makes this great statement. This is a complete statement here that we talked about, these, where Paul's saying, I'm trying to grasp these things that are already finished. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. You've forgotten, brother, sister, you're in Christ. Seek that. Seek him. Looking back at our text, notice what he does here. He tries to give us some help of some of the dangers that help us, that would restrict us from running and help us to keep running. He says, the one thing I do, and first of all, he goes, forgetting what lies behind. Ooh, the past. The past is dangerous. You know who loves you to live in the past? Satan. Regrets, sin that the Lord's forgiven you for. He loves the past. He loves to keep you bound in the past. You know why? Because you never move forward. Your head's always back. He loves to keep you thinking that you are worthless, that you, you, you've done this in your past, and, and you know, if you could have just made that right choice, things would have been better. And by the way, who do you think you are running after Christ when you have this in your past? That's Satan. He's a tempter, remember? See, that keeps people from moving forward. Paul had a lot of things in his past. Persecuted the church? <laughs> I know, I mean, in a sense, I, what, some, there's things in my past that I'm going, Lord, I'm so glad you forgave me. For. Imagine Paul waking up in the morning going, I'm preaching to the people I once put to death. 
I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the greatest, the chief of sinners, he called himself. See, he had to wrestle with that. He, he knows that. He knows where Satan wants to take him back and go, oh yeah, right, Paul? You held the coats while they killed Stephen. This is good, isn't this? Because you and I filter our way back into the past from time to time, don't we? And it's deadly. And I'll tell you what, if you ever run a race and you're looking behind you, you're going to crash. Look ahead. Notice he says that. Reaching forward to what lies ahead. Reaching forward to what lies ahead. Epictino is the word, and it's a fascinating word. It literally means this, stretch out for something. Are you being stretched in your faith? The word we get, we translate the English word strain from this word. Strain on for Christ. Stretch out. Oh, come on, Scott, I'm comfortable. I get bothered when somebody sits in my chair at church. You want me to stretch out? See, Paul knows for us to press on, that means we can't get caught in the past. We can't sit down on the side of the race, but we need to stretch. We need to push ourselves. I'm sorry, coaching too much coaching analogies, but man, if you're coaching kids and you go, hey, you know, just do your best. Good coaches don't do that. We're going, you got more. Come on, let's go. That's what we do, right? We blow the whistle and get after you. Come on, we can do more. I think that's what the Lord's doing here. He's not letting us just sit in our, well, you know, I'm really tired and you don't know this person I married. Come on, stretch. To quote Dory, keep swimming. Keep moving. Go forward. See, eternal life is the final glorification, the likeness of Christ. First John 3, 2 says, when we see him, we'll be like him. That is the finish line. Stretch out for Christ. Hey, there's nothing more that gets a baseball coach excited when the third baseman dives in the hole, stretches out across the line, makes a play, gets up and throws him out. <laughs> Maybe that's what the Lord is calling you to do this morning. I'm not stretching out for you, Lord. I'm just in my little corner. Four. Do our earthly goals match our heavenly calling? 14 says, verse 14 says, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Using that word again, I press on, I pursue, I chase. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, in the middle of that prayer, he said, in Matthew 6.10, he said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wow. Sometimes we forget about that part of the prayer. See, he's teaching them how to pray, not to pray just this prayer, but the aspects of prayer. And one of the aspects that Jesus taught was that our goal is to do the will of God as it is done in heaven, to have that done here on earth. That takes pursuit. Because just look around you and say, hmm, I wonder if this is what it looks like in heaven. <laughs> no. Does my life reflect what it looks like in heaven? 
Paul wants us to pursue, literally has the idea here, this word has to bear down for this great prize of Christ, even while on this earth. Being in the presence of Christ is the upward call. That's the finish line. That's the trophy. That's the prize. That's the fight. That's the win. That's what it is, getting into his presence. And you and I run that race, box that fight. Paul's pushing us. He's cheerleading us on. See, remember the book of Philippians is about the joy giver. It's about Christ. And the joy that comes from pursuing him. Look, pastors go flat too. We flat line too. We're not supposed to tell you that, but I'm telling you. There's times we, we plateau out. Things get into our life. We don't confess them. We're struggling, just like anybody else. And you know what we lose right away is our joy, our fever for Christ. And you've seen pastors go through this. I hate losing my joy. And it rot, when, I, when I stand still and I'm not in that race and not in that battle, striving after the will of God, disciplining my body, running that race, I am not a joyful man. And my family can tell you about those times. They're not fun. I don't like them. But you and I know what it's like to pursue Jesus. You know those times in your life and you go, man, I was the happiest man here. It was hard, but I love the Lord. He was, he was first in my life. I was reading the word. I was talking to him continually. What a joy that was. And see, that's what Paul's after. Press on. Because one day you're going to step across that threshold and you're going to enter into the arms of our eternal Savior. And oh, will it be worth it all? Peter says, that as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, looking back, right? Which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One of God who called you, be holy yourself also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. See, Peter's too is on this theme. Lord, we need to run from, for you. We need to stay within those beautiful guidelines that you've given us that bring us joy and contentment in you. It's a difficult battle for us. But let me tell you this, just in this thought, last thought on this point. Joy is the first product of obedience. I promise you. You can watch it in your children's life and you can watch it in your own. Joy is the first product of obedience. Obey and receive joy. Last thought in the last two verses here. How will we finish? Verse 15 and 16. Let us therefore as many as are perfect hmm, have this attitude. And if anything, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Don't you love this about Paul? He always includes others. Look at this. He says in verse 15, as many as are perfect. He's including others. He knows he's perfect in Christ. And, and that's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about religious perfection. He already tried that and said it's just nothing but waste. It's, it's nothing. So he's talking about our perfection in Christ, our perfect standing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he says that we are to have this type of attitude we are to understand verses like Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected 
for all those who are sanctified. That's the offering of Christ. And he tells us to have this attitude, literally means have this mindset, be locked in on this truth that Jesus has done it all. This is why we believe in Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, through his word alone, for his glory alone. We lock in on those truths and then we live for him. We lock on in what we call the five alones and we, and, and we hold on that and then we live for him because he accomplished those things. And he, he's exhorting and, and that comes through worship and joy and spiritual growth and all those efforts that we put in by the strength of the Lord to accomplish those things. But he also says, look, if you have a different attitude, God will reveal that. And maybe he's revealing it today. Maybe this morning he's revealing that in you, going, you know what, I don't have this press-on mentality. I kind of have to sit on the side of the road and wait for someone to bring a Gatorade mentality. I need to get up. And maybe the Lord's revealing that this morning. He's certainly going to reveal it at the end of your life. But God will reveal these things to you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, listen to this, about how the race is not one on your own efforts, but God will do this and he'll strengthen you and get you through it. I love this verse. Just write this down and look at it later. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's given you everything you need for salvation and the daily stuff. That's what I think those verses mean. He's given you everything you need. Through the true knowledge of him, that's who we're running after, Christ, who called us, kaleo, chose us, pulled us out, electos, we get this word elect from this, coming out by his own glory and excellence. And then verse 16, he closes this little section and we'll pick it up next week. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Let us keep chasing Christ. Let us never give up. Let us never give up. If today you're sitting on the side of a spiritual race, get up. Get up. The longer you lay down, the harder it is to get up. Get up. Confess your weaknesses. Confess your failures to God, who is your Savior, who loves you, and get running again. Get up. Don't lay there. Get up. Forget the things in the past, the hurts that Satan likes to jab you with. Ask God to forgive you for them if you have not done that and get moving. Final verse. Again, out of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. I want you to turn there. We'll close with this. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 10, you should mark this in your Bible. This is a great reminder to what God has already laid hold of for you. After you have suffered for a little while. We all suffer, don't we? If you're in this world, you're going to suffer at some level. Maybe not like some of the martyrs that have gone before us. But you're going to suffer. But after you've suffered for a little while, look at this. The God of all grace... Of all grace, 
the originator of grace, the giver of grace, the one who holds grace, that God who called you, kaleoed you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's the prize. That's the tape you just ran through when you see him. All battles will be done. All racing, running, boxing, and fighting will be done. Because he will, present, future tense, will himself perfect you. You will find that final perfection. That unredeemed humanness will fall off you. And never again, can you imagine this, brothers and sisters, never again will we struggle with sin. Oh, I long for that. And you will be confirmed. He will say, this is my child. Enter into my rest. Done. You belong to me. And I will strengthen you and establish you for here through eternity is what the Lord promises us. So, believers, we are living the Christian race, not the rat race. Right? We're living the Christian race, not the rat race. And if you find yourself in the rat race, say, God, I want out of the rat race. I want back in the Christian race. Confess that. Move forward. Don't get stuck in the past. Press on. Father, this is an amazing text. I've been so encouraged this week. It's challenged me. It's convicted me. It's cheered me on and encouraged me. And I pray it's done that for your children this morning. We know your word does not return void. We know it sets out to accomplish a goal. And we pray that it has done that in our hearts this morning. Father, we know that you wrote every, every letter, every jot and tittle of this text through the Apostle Paul, but we do thank you for Paul. We thank you that you spoke honestly through him and that he lets us know that he has not arrived there yet. We are still in this spiritual journey, wrestling along, trying to run, Lord, and trying to keep our eyes on you, Lord, and we, we confess we are weak at times, Lord. But Lord, I pray that you would help us secure our eyes on the things above where you are seated at the right hand. And may we run right through the tape, right into your arms, Lord. Father, may you bless the word today. May it go and pierce all who hear it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.